the sake of the church, we pray that you would give our land a measure of peace, the measure of welfare, so that your church can prosper. Did it to Egypt in the days of Joseph. Egypt was a pagan nation. You did it for the benefit of Israel and for her well-being. So pray, we pray, Father, as you have done it before, that you would do it again. Pray for all of the elected and appointed political figures in this land that are not bowing before your supremacy, but that are in blatant and audacious rebellion against you. Convert them or either convert them to Christ to bow before your supremacy or remove them from their place in history. As your church is being persecuted all over the world today, more martyrs today than they were in the first century, we pray that you'd keep your church safe, that you'd save her from bitterness, that you would save her from depression, and that you would help her to understand that everything that happens comes from your hand. Create good times. You create calamitous times. You are the Lord who does all these things. And now as we come, Father, to read your infallible, all-powerful, all-sufficient word. We pray as your people have prayed for centuries. Almighty, ever-gracious Father, for as much as all our salvation depends upon our having truly understood your holy word, therefore grant us that our hearts be set free from worldly things so that we may with all diligence and faith hear and apprehend your holy word, that thereby we may rightly understand your gracious will and in all sincerity live according to that will. To your purpose and glory through our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. For those of you that are visiting with us, that last uh, prayer that I just prayed, the last part of my prayer, was written by a great 16th century German reformer by the name of Martin Bucher, who always prayed it before he read the scriptures. John Calvin took Bucher's prayer and modeled his own prayer that he would pray every time he read the scriptures. So for those of you who are visiting, we are in the book of Genesis, and today we are going to read Genesis 47, 27 through Genesis 48. So let us stand for the reading of the Word of God. Genesis 47, 27 through the 48th chapter. Now, Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful 
and became very numerous. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time for Israel to die drew near, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Please, if I have found favor in your sight, place now your hand under my thigh and deal with me in kindness and faithfulness. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But when I lie down with my fathers, you shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. So he swore to him. Then Israel bowed in worship at the head of the bed. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. Then jo Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance." Now, as for me, when I came from Pandam, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They're my sons whom God has given me. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he couldn't see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. Then Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand, toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom 
my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. And may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him. He grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he shall be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel shall pronounce blessing, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. And I will give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. You may be seated. In the scheme of things, we're looking at a story now that took place about two millennia before Jesus was born. The whole world is suffering under a severe global famine. There's no food in all the world except at the feet of a Hebrew named Joseph. Second in command in all of Egypt. And as far as domestic policy is concerned, more powerful than the Pharaoh himself. Joseph controlled the economy. He controlled the food supply. He controlled agriculture. All the people were slaves. Pharaoh had confiscated all of the property. There was no uh, free ownership of property. There was a tax of 20% on anything they could raise. And all of these policies were put in place by Joseph on Egypt as directed by God himself. And what were the purpose of these prophecies, uh, these policies? Their purpose was to keep Israel safe from being dominated by tyrannical Egypt. Egypt was suffering. It was on the verge of complete collapse because of these policies, and that was the purpose of them. They had no weakness to act like a tyrant over Israel. These people of Israel had come down from Canaan because there was no food there, and Joseph gave them the land of Koshen, best real estate in the land, up in the Dial Delta as it enters into the Mediterranean Sea. Uh, they uh, bought and sold 
they sold and acquired land. They grew and grew in number. And they were not suffering at all by the global famine. Because Joseph was shepherding them through it. So, Jacob calls Joseph to his side. Jacob's 147 years old now. No spring chicken. He said, Joseph, I want you to promise me something. I don't want to be buried in Egypt. I want you to promise me that when I die, that you bury me back home. Back in the promised land. Back with where my father and grandfather are buried. And swear to me that you'll do it. And Joseph swore that he would do it. And Joseph bowed down before this guy. Whenever I read that, it amazes me. Joseph was the second most powerful man in the world. Dressed to the hilt with all of his Egyptian royalty clothes, wealthy. Nobody in Israel could take a step or lift a finger without his permission. Jacob is a shepherd, lives in tent. They couldn't even go back to his own homeland that God gave to him by covenant. The second of Pharaoh bows down with his face to the ground. And takes an oath to this old shepherd. Now, what, what's going on here? There's nothing put in the in these passages accidentally. These are t- uh, very important passages, forty-eight and forty-ninth chapter of Genesis. What Jacob is doing. Everybody's prospering, all of the, whole, uh, all the chosen people, the covenant community, family of Jacob, the church, those are all the same things. They're all prospering. So what is Jacob doing? He's saying, Joseph, I want you to look to the future. The money in Egypt failed. Didn't just say it that they lost their money. It says the money failed because the Egyptians no longer had an orientation toward the future. They only lived to get food for the present. Now, Joseph, I want you to bury me in Canaan, and I want you to think about that. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard work to get me back to Canaan. We're walking here, remember? Everybody's walking from Egypt to Canaan, and I want you to carry my corpse Canaan. It'd be hard. Joseph knew it'd be hard. But Jacob is saying, Joseph, I want you to look toward the future. I can't live in that land now, Joseph, but I will. And my descendants will live in it. And they'll possess that land. And the possessing of the land of Canaan is just a prelude the people of God possessing the entire earth. Paul said in Romans 4 that Abraham was heir of the world. 
So I want you to keep his future orientation so the people of God will never be satisfied with the ease and the affluence and prosperity of Egypt. I want them to have it be a greater honor to be a son of Jacob than to be a ruler of thousands of kingdoms. How about you? See this powerful man bowing with his face on the ground before this old, dying, decrepit man that couldn't get out of bed. Shepherd. Joseph is saying, it's a greater honor for me to be a son of Joseph and to be the right-hand man of the Pharaoh of Egypt. All the wealth, all the power, all the prestige, all the authority, those are important things, Lord, and I praise the Lord for all that you've given me. I'd rather be a member of a little church than the heir of all of Egypt. It's a greater honor to be your son than to be Pharaoh. Now, I ask you, can you say the same thing? Can you say it's a greater honor for me to be a son or daughter of Jacob a greater honor for me to be a son or daughter of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't look like much. It's not very impressive. Small in numbers. Weak in money. Treated as bigoted and marginalized by the culture. I'd rather be a member of a faithful little church and to have all the ease and affluence of the United States. That you. What does it take to buy you, by the way? What does it take for the world to buy you so that you'll walk with it rather than walking with God? Because when the world finds out your price, it will pay it every time. So you ask yourself, which is a greater honor for me? To be a member of the covenant community? To be a member of a community that's been going on now for millennia? To be a member of the church and the family of God? Or to be a slave of this world. So, old uh, Jacob is teaching jo uh, Joseph that. I want you to think about the future, Joseph. I want you to take your eyes off of everything that God has given you. You've done your job. Done your job. My people are safe. The church is safe. Egypt's on the verge of collapse. Now is the time to spend all of your efforts with your people, preparing for the land of promise. So Joseph take that, takes that oath. 
it's the future. Now, that's what we're going to talk about today. That was just a little introduction. We're not even talking about Genesis 47. We're going to talk about Genesis 48 and introduce Genesis 48 and 49. Now, you notice the title of our sermon today. It's a terrible title. It sounds more like some intellectual uh, lecture than some sermon that's practical to our everyday lives. God's covenant and eschatology. Eschatology is made up of two Greek words. Eschatos means last, and lagos means a word, a word about last things. So what these two chapters are about is the future. Jacob said, Joseph, I want you to live for the future. I want the future always to be on your mind. I don't want you to be absorbed by the present or bought by the evil culture in which you live. I don't want you to be blinded by all of these great treasures and all these accolades and all this prestige. I want you to focus your life upon the future and the development and the growth of the covenant people of God as they grow in number greater and greater and greater, as they influence more families and nations in the world, and as they bit by bit take possession of the whole earth. So these chapters are about the future. Now, when you study eschatology, or anybody, study the last things, don't start with the New Testament. That's where everybody makes a mistake. Don't start reading through the New Testament and finding out what it says about the rapture, about the tribulation, about the millennium, about the thousand-year reign of Christ, and all those various things that everybody have, has, has, uh, has curiosity about. Don't start with the New Testament if you're going to get it right about the future and about the second coming. Because you'll get it wrong. Start with Genesis 48 and 49. Because the basic elements that you and I need to have a proper understanding of what the future holds for God's people before and after the second coming are found in Genesis 48 and 49. And there's two phases to this future. These chapters are a prophecy of what's going to take place in the church and in the world in the future. And the first phase of that prophecy is about the future of the sons of Jacob from Jacob's day all the way to the birth of Christ. Want to know what the future is for Israel? You read the Old Testament and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in terms of the prophecies of Genesis 48 and 49. The second phase of those prophecies is from the birth of Jesus to the second coming of Jesus. Who knows how many millennia that will be? So you want to know what's going to happen tomorrow? You want to know what's going to happen 
years from now? You want to know what the future holds before the second coming of Jesus Christ and what happens after the second coming of Jesus Christ? The basic elements informing you are found in the 48th and 49th chapters of Genesis. That's how important these are. Now, there's several significant things about, we're not even going to get to 49 today. We're not going to get through much of 48. We're just basically going to talk about the significant things. What's significant in chapter 48? Now, notice much of these two chapters is written in poetry, first of all. And if you look through the Old Testament and flip through it, you'll find most of the poetry, the, uh, of the prophecies, the Old Testament are written in, in poetry. Uh, there's a look at 49. Look, that's poetry. You can see it looks like poetry in the New American Standard Version. Uh, you got history in Genesis. You got history in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. After that, it's all poetry. So the Old Testament is largely historical narrative, which you read literally as things really taking place like we've been doing in Genesis, and poetry. So flip through Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, all the prophets, it's poetry. Now why did God put most of the prophecies about the future for Israel's life up to the birth of Christ and for the church from Christ to the second coming. Well, you can say things in poetry that uh, with a greater uh, clarity and beauty than you can say those things literally. Poetry has all kinds of figures of speech, similes, metaphors, and all the rest. Poetry is beautiful. It strikes not only the mind, it strikes the emotions. That's why we write things in poetry, because it strikes the emotions as well as the mind. And it's also easier to remember. Poetry is easier to remember than historical narrative. So what are some of the significant things about this 48th chapter? Well, first of all, it teaches us the relationship between predestination, history, and prophecy. Got to know the relationship of those if you're going to get through this life alive. If you're going to have a Christian worldview, if you're going to be able to understand and be successful in serving Christ throughout the future, you've got to know the relationship between predestination and history and prophecy. And I'm going to make this as simple as I possibly can. There is a verse in Isaiah that shows you the relationship between all three of these things. I want you to turn with me to Isaiah 25, verse 1. Isaiah 25, verse 1. O Lord, thou art my God, I will exalt thee. I will give thanks to thy name for 
Thou hast worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. Let me paraphrase that. Lord, we praise you because you have displayed your awesome power, carrying out the predestined plans you formed before time with perfect faithfulness to your word. So understand what history is. History's prepackaged. History's prepack. Uh, history's preplanned. It's preinterpreted. Whatever takes place in your life, and whatever takes place in the history of this planet, was planned by God before time began. Nothing happens by chance. Nothing happens accidentally. That everything that takes place in human history was predestined and planned by God before time began. So everything, therefore, has a purpose. Everything, therefore, has a meaning. It's not a meaning you impose upon it. It's a meaning that God put upon it when he planned it out before time began. You don't live in a meaningless universe. You've never had a meaningless uh, event ever take place in your life. You never have. Everything that's ever taken place in your life has some meaning or some purpose to the glory of God and for the benefit of his church. So history is prepackaged. It was planned by God and predestined before the world began. Now, prophecy. Prophecy is not simply the prediction of things that are going to take place. The prophetic word of God is what moves history along toward its appointed goal. The Bible says in Hebrews that the word of God has the power to move everything that God has planned towards its appointed goal and nothing could go wrong. Whatever is prophesied in the scripture happens. Just like whenever Jesus preached, whatever Jesus preached happened, took place. None of his words ever came back to him void and without accomplishing the purpose for which it was sent. And since the Lord Jesus Christ himself, from the right hand of God by the power of spirit, preaches through preachers who faithfully preach the word of God, whatever preachers preach, if they're faithful to the word of God, happens. That's how powerful preaching is. The prophetic word, the preached word, is what gives form, direction, content to history. The Word of God, when, when it's preached, when it's prophesied, and when it's accurate and empowered by the Holy Spirit is what moves history along. So whatever the Bible says is going to happen to the Hebrews happens through the preached Word. Whatever the Bible says is going to happen through the church or to America, it's going to happen through the church, uh, through the preached word, through the prophetic word, and nothing can keep it from happening.
So as we look at these things, you remember, we're talking about prophecy here. We're talking about eternally prepackaged prophecy. This is not simply an old man in uh, chapter 49 telling you what he hoped, how life turned out for his sons. This is a prophet of God. This is a man whose words originated with God himself. And so when you read these prophecies about what's going to take place in the lives of the Hebrews in the Old Testament and in the church from the New Testament of the Second Coming, those things will happen. Not one of them will be unfulfilled. So that's the first significant thing. When you read these last chapters of Genesis, you're reading about history, predestination, and prophecy. Second significant thing about these things. These last chapters are Christ-centered through and through. Who was Joseph? I mean, Jacob. Jacob was a type of Christ. Jacob was a mediator of the promises of God from God to the children of the covenant. These promises, promises came through him and were fulfilled through him. He was a type of Christ. Joseph was a type of Christ. In fact, he's given names, as we've already seen in Genesis, that are sort of shocking. We're surprised that Joseph was called by these names when we only refer them to Christ. He's the deliverer. He's the preserver of life. He is the redeemer. These are all titles of Joseph. Of course, with a small capital, a small letter at the beginning. Because in his life, you can see what Jesus Christ at the right hand of God is doing by his providence and by his word today. He's defending his enemies, he's uh, his friends. He's preserving their life. He is exalting them to places of power uh, through humiliation. And he is destroying his enemies and caused them to be futile in all of their efforts to destroy the people of God. Look at uh, some of the things that uh, is said about God in this chapter. It said uh, in verse 15 of chapter 48, And he, that is Jacob, blessed Joseph, said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and, and uh, Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. All of these rest, uh, uh, messianic words. They could all very easily just describe Jesus Christ himself. He's our mediator. He's our go-between. He's the one who's redeemed us from all evil. He's our good shepherd who laid down his life for us and gave us life that we might have it more abundantly. Now, I want you to notice something in that little poem in verses 13, uh, 15, 16, and 17. There are three subjects. Now, you got no English grammar. Appreciate this. There are three subjects and one verb. And that one verb is third person singular. Now, if you were to have a plural subject in English and you were to use a singular verb 
it would go something like this. My family and I is happy. And if you were to turn such a paper in with all that grammatical mistakes in English to your teacher, you'd be criticized for not doing grammar. If you have a plural subject, you're going to have a plural verb. But here you got a little poem with a plural subject and a singular verb. Look at it. Look at the subject. Verse 15. The God before whom my fathers Abraham Isaac walked, the God who's been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless, third person singular, bless the lads. Three persons, a plurality of persons in the Godhead, and yet one God. So here you have an intimation of the Trinity, it's himself. Three persons, and yet one verb. It's sort of like the first chapter, the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created all things. Created is a third person singular. God is a plural noun. So there is a plurality of persons in the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And yet they're one God. So this is a Christ-centered text through and through. In fact, over in chapter 49, go to chapter 49 and verse 8 and following where Jacob foretells what's going to happen to the descendants of Judah. He says that Judah is going to be a lion's whelp. Strong, powerful lion is going to come from Judah's stock. What's Jesus called in the book of Revelation? The lion of the tribe of Judah. So the thing that stands out in these chapters is that they're Christ-centered through and through. They're on what Christ is doing in the church and in the world, in history, from then to the very end of time. There's another significant thing here, and that significant thing is that this is about the church. It's not just about a small little family of 12 sons and an old man that come from Canaan. What happens to them is a prelude. They are the church. They are the covenant community. So what God predicts about the sons of Jacob has a greater fulfillment in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice sometimes in here, like in the fourth chapter, fourth verse of the 48th chapter, God says, I'm going to make you a company of, pe of, of peoples. And there is a plural word that we've seen before, peoples from various backgrounds, various tribes, nation, nationality, tongues. But the word company is the Hebrew word kahal, K-Q-A-H-A-L, which in the Greek Old Testament is translated synagogue, which is used as one of the words for the church 
in the New Testament. So company here can mean the assembly, the company, the church, comprised of many peoples. That's what you have to look forward to. So these are prophecies not simply about the Jews and what's going to happen to the Jews in the state of Israel. This is a prophecy of what's going to happen to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ comprised of people from every nationality and tongue throughout the history of the world all the way to the second coming. And there's something significant here about Joseph and what Joseph does, as we've already seen. Joseph would rather have Jesus than silver or gold. bows down with his face to the ground because he'd rather be the son of Jacob of all the treasures and powers of this world. He was willing to live for the future. He didn't live for the present. That's why Egypt fell. They lived for the present just to get food. And the whole economy, agriculture, everything collapsed. They lost their freedom as individuals. They lost their private property. They had to live under the tyranny of the Pharaohs while Israel prospered and was free. And there is no freedom outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I came to bring you life so that you can have it more abundantly. And when you know the truth, the truth shall make you free. So all of those things are found right there in the 48th chapter of Genesis. Now let's look at this chapter. Let's see if we can find any details that are worth talking about. Verse 48, uh, chapter 48, verse 1. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. Now, you know, Egypt, as we've said before, had the biggest, most complex, octopus-like bureaucracy in the history of the world up until the 20th century with America and the Soviet Union. Massive bureaucracy. And Joseph was the head of that bureaucracy. Can you imagine all the papers he had to fill out? Can you imagine all the details he had to work with? Found out his daddy was sick. Left all the papers on the desk. Left all the administrative responsibilities. Left all of his duties toward the governing of Egypt. And ran to his daddy's side. You see what's important to Joseph. Took his two sons with him. In verse 2, when it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you. Israel, another name for Jacob, collected his strength and set up in the bed. It took every ounce of strength in him to sit up in the bed. He was so sick and so old. Verse 3, then Jacob said to Joseph, El Shaddai. You remember? 
That's one of the most common names for the Lord found in the patriarchal period. El Shaddai, the Almighty God, the All-Powerful God, the All-Sufficient God, the God that can call things into existence by simply speaking. God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. I saw God. God uh, made himself known to me. I wrestled with him once. God blessed me over and over and over. What is it to be blessed by God? We use the word now that is simply a cliche. To be blessed by God is for God to introduce into the core of your being a power that transforms everything about you and enables you to be successful in serving God in this life. That's what the word blessing means. So Jacob simply given a testimony to his son Joseph. God Almighty appeared to me. I saw him face to face in the land of Canaan, and he blessed me, transformed my whole life. And he said this to me, Joseph. He said, Behold, I will make you a fruitful and numerous people. I will make you a company of peoples. And will give you, give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Did God give Palestine to the Jews for an everlasting possession? No, they lost it 2,000 years ago until the United Nations gave it back to them in 1948. And who knows how long they're going to be able to live there. So here you see the covenant promises that have been made. How many times throughout the book of Genesis? God says to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Joseph, I'm going to give you a seed, and that seed will be Jesus par excellence. And that seed will also include people beyond counting, more numerous, the stars, the sky, the dust on the earth, uh, the uh, sand on the seashore. In this passage, it says over in verse 16, I'm going to make your seed more numerous than fish. You ever had fish? You ever had tropical fish? Have you ever seen tropical fish give birth to eggs? Or any kind of fish? I mean, they give birth to hundreds, if not thousands, of eggs all at one time. So God says, uh, Jacob says, God said to me, I'm going to make your seed more numerous than stars the sky, more numerous than the sand on the seashore, more numerous than the dust of the earth, more numerous than fish. And that's the church. The seed of Abraham is made up of all those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of ethnic origin. Galatians 3.29. If you belong to Christ, no matter what ethnic origin you have, you are the heirs of all the promises of Christ. 
and can consider yourself a seed of Abraham. So Jacob sees with his eyes what he hasn't uh, with his the eyes of his faith what he haven't seen with his eyes of his body. And he says, God told me when I saw him, he's going to make me a company of peoples. And he's going to give this land and the entire earth to those who believe in Christ as I do for an everlasting possession. So God's going to give the earth to you, the church of God, before the second coming. And then you're going to keep it after the second coming in the new heavens, the new earth. It's everlasting. The promise that God's going to give you this world is everlasting. Verse 5. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. I consider them a part of this covenant. Jacob speaking not just as an old man, but as Calvin said, as a father, as the father of the fathers of the church. Here is a man who lives in a tent. Can't get out of bed, he's so old and so weak. Distributing land as if he was a king. Distributing events in history as if he controlled all of history. He is a king. As well as a prophet and a priest. And he's speaking prophetic words that God told him to speak and administers them as the mediator of the promises of God to the covenant people. He's a type of Christ. So in verse uh, 6, But your offspring that have been born after Ephraim and Manasseh shall be yours. They're not going to have their own separate tribe. They're going to be included in other tribes. They shall be called by the names of their brothers in their inheritance. Next verse, sad verse. Now as for me, 147-year-old decrepit Jacob, when I came from Pandan, Rachel died. That was years ago. Still heartbroken. Still grieving. You think of Rachel all of a sudden. Standing in front of me was Rachel's son, Joseph. Now, as for me, when I came from Pandan, Rachel died to my sorrow. In the land of Canaan on the journey when there was still some distance to go to Ephathrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephathrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's son, he says, who are these little boys? And Joseph said in verse 9, these are my sons. God has given me. So old, weak, nearly blind Jacob says, bring them over here to me. I want to bless them. 
I want to be used of God to insert into their lives at the core of their being a power that is so great that it will transform their life and control their whole future. Mind, can't get out of bed, speaking like a man of all power. Now, the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he couldn't see. Now, notice this picture and ask why in the world it's in the Bible. Then Joseph brought them close to his daddy and kissed them. And he, that is his daddy, their granddaddy, kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never thought I'd live long enough to see your face, Joseph. Now I not only get to see you, I get to see two of my grandsons. Verse 12, Then Joseph, second to Pharaoh, took his two boys from his knees. They were young. They were sitting on his lap. Joseph took these two boys from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground again for this father of the fathers of the church. And Joseph took them both. Now notice this. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right. And brought them close to him. In other words, Joseph sitting his so here's here's Israel sitting on his bed. Joseph brings his sons over. He takes his oldest son Manasseh and sits him on his granddaddy's right knee. And then takes the second son, the youngest son, Ephraim, and so that his so that Jacob has his daddy's right hand on Manasseh's head. And then he takes Ephraim, and he sets Ephraim on his left knee so that uh, Jacob had his left hand on Ephraim's head. Now he's fixing to bless them. Manasseh's, his right hand's on Manasseh, his left hand's on Ephraim. That's always significant because the right hand, the, the oldest son is the one that's going to take the position of leadership and dominance in the crowd, and Manasseh is the dominant one. Verse 11, uh, excuse me, verse 14. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. So here Joseph put Jacob's hand, right hand on Manasseh's head, put his left hand on Ephraim's head, and then old Jacob lifted it up and crossed his hands and put his left hand on Manasseh's head and his right hand on Ephraim's head. 
We'll come back here to verse 15, but notice what Joseph said in verse 17. Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head. It displeased him because it's supposed to be Manasseh that's going to be the dominant one. And so Joseph grabbed his father's hand and took it off of Ephraim's head and put his right hand on Manasseh's head. But, verse 19, verse 18, and Joseph said to his father, Daddy, you got it wrong. I know you're blind. I know you're decrepit, so I'm not getting mad at you, but you're up at the wrong hands on the wrong boys. So Joseph switched hands. Verse 18, and Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on Manasseh, not Ephraim. Verse 19, but his father refused. I know what I'm doing, son. Do not think I have dementia. I know what I'm doing. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people. And he shall be great, Manasseh. However, his younger brother, Ephraim, shall be greater than he. And his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel shall pronounce blessing, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So what? Spent how many? 10, 15 verses? Tell him that Joseph think his daddy got it wrong. <laughs> Brings his sons up. The Jacob, the old patriarch. And he takes Manasseh and puts him under Jacob's right hand because Manasseh's the older. And he should have a dominant place. Takes his little boy Ephraim, puts it under Jacob's left hand because he is younger. Joseph is shocked. He goes up and lifts his daddy's hands. And said, you got him wrong. Your right hand should be on the oldest and your left hand on the youngest. Old Jacob crosses his arms. Says to the second in command of the Pharaoh of Egypt, you got it wrong, son. God has determined that Manasseh will serve the younger. And though God's going to bless Manasseh and Ephraim, Ephraim is going to be in the place of dominance. That's what happened. You go through the Old Testament, you find out that there wasn't any famous prophet, priest, or king, or judge, or anything came out of Manasseh. And you'll see that 
Ephraim was so powerful and so dominant that you can look through some of the prophecies in Isaiah and you'll see that the nation of Israel is called Ephraim in some places. So what? Joseph, I'm blessing Ephraim over Manasseh because the older shall serve the younger. Did Jacob ever experience anything like that in his life with his brother Esau? And God says, even though you're twins and Esau was, the, was born first, nevertheless, I have determined that the older shall serve the younger. For Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That's the lesson. How many times have we learned this and seen this in the book of Genesis? Every single blessing and promise of God's covenant with his people is bestowed upon God's children according to God's good pleasure and not according to man. Traditional, Ephraim should serve Manasseh. God says, nope, I am God, not tradition. I learned that back when I was a little boy. Saul, the older, was to serve me. God is sovereign, and he has determined everything that happens, and he determines who gets what blessing. And he distributes the blessings of God according to his uh, good pleasure. The blessings of God are not distributed upon people according to human worth or human value or because of human decision or because of human effort or because of anything that human beings have done. God does what he does because that's the way he wants to do it. He distributes the blessings of salvation as he chooses, not as you and I choose. Joseph, if we go by man's traditions, you'd be right. Ephraim the younger would serve Manasseh the older. But we're not going to go by human traditions. We're going to go by my sovereign choice. You reckon Joseph was happy with that? I'm sure he was. <clears throat> Have you learned that lesson? Have you learned the lesson that it's not you and your decision as to how things turn out in your life? That it's not you and your decision as to how Blessings come upon you. Whatever happens in your life happens because God decided. El Shaddai decided. 
Jehovah's decided. This is the way I want it. What you want is pretty much irrelevant. Say, well, I don't like that kind of God. I want to be have a hand in the decision. There is no other God. So you remember this. Verse 21, we're through. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die. God will be with you, Joseph, and bring you back to the land of your fathers. <laughs> and I'll give you more land than all the others. In fact, I'm going to give you that piece of land that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Remember that time when Abraham raised an army and took <coughs> the land of the Amorites with his sword and his bow? No, you don't. There is no reference to that battle anywhere in the Bible. The only place it's ever brought up is in John 4, 5. We don't know what happened. There was some time or another when uh, Jacob raised his army of the people in his house, attacked the Amorites, took their property, and that's about all we know. That is not about all we know. That's all we know about how he got that piece of property. So, there you got it. God's covenant in eschatology. The future of the world is described in these verses. Now you live the rest of your life remembering that that powerful word causes everything that God promises to happen in your life. Hold on to it. Love it with all your heart and soul. Read it. Know what he's promised so you can know what's going to happen and you won't live in ignorance all your life. Be a servant of that word. And count it a greater privilege to be a son of Jacob and the Pharaoh of a thousand kingdoms. 